Lord Almighty, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would meet us here. Jesus, we want to reflect you. We want people to see you in us. Help us to trust in your promises for your glory, for our joy, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Atheist and philosopher Voltaire once famously said, Show me your redeemed life, and I will believe in your Redeemer. Now those are painful words. Evidently, Voltaire found no one with a redeemed life as he died without a Redeemer. Irony, it seems, however, was on the Christian side because only a few years after his death, his house was used to print Bibles. The very Bible that he said would never be read again only a few years after his death. Still, the comment is painful because there are far too few redeemed lives today. We can come up with as many excuses for this as we will, but the point is that our excuses ring hollow and the world is quickly going to hell in a handbasket. Today will not be so much an exploration of why this remark stings so much as an exploration of Jesus' solution to this problem. I aim, among other things, to comment on Jesus' own summary of his message. I aim to show the initiative that God takes in calling his people. And I aim to spur you on to love and good works. So prepare yourself to be kicked in the ribs with sharp metal objects so that others will see your redeemed life and therefore believe in your Redeemer. Trust the promises of God for you in Jesus. Now, of course, one of the fortunate things about internet preaching is I can't actually kick anyone. So instead, I'll ask the Holy Spirit to do that for me as I preach his word. That such motivation is needed is obvious not merely because of the Voltaire quote, but also because the preacher to the Hebrews commands us to do just that. He says in Hebrews 10:24, let us consider how to stir up one another, or the NIV says, spur one another on to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Is the day drawing near? Well then, let us press on. Let us see Jesus' words and how they encourage us, how they motivate us, sometimes painfully motivate us, so that you and I will engage in love and good works for the good of our near ones. So let's start with our passage today as we learn to trust the promises of God for us in Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is near, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We have seen Mark. We've been watching him, and now he's finishing his prologue to the gospel as a whole. And he has told us about John and Jesus' baptism. And now we're going to find out later what 
the, what happened when John was arrested. That won't be until chapter 6. But what we see here is that Mark is re-emphasizing one of his great themes in his letter. Persecution and struggle for all believers that will continue this side of glory until we get there. I've already said the theme or the big idea I'm going with in the Gospel of John as a whole is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accompanies His disciples to glory through suffering. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accompanies His disciples to glory through suffering. It's adversity and suffering, not ease and comfort. Where would American Christians get the notion that we can equate the American dream with biblical Christianity? We don't get that notion from heaven. Why is the American church so anemic today? It's not because the truth is irrelevant, but because what we're selling to the culture is not really good news. We tell people, Join us, and life will go well for you. But that is not Mark. And it's not Mark's Redeemer who tells that to God's people. No, as a matter of fact, Mark is much more interesting than that. We will find, as we continue in this world, that we will continue to experience adversity and suffering as exemplified here in this, uh, this passage by the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptizer, after John was arrested. Now, in this case, arrested is the word that in other places is translated deliver or hand over. And the meaning is clear. John was handed over to the authorities and thus arrested. It may be that part of the time being fulfilled that we see in this passage is that John needed to be removed from the scene so that Jesus could act. If John's job was to point to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God... Perhaps once he's done that, John needed to be moved on. That, in fact, seems to be Mark's point. And John's arrest here is in line with the motif we've already seen the prelude in the prelude concerning the wilderness. You remember we've said now a couple of times, Mark uses the idea of wilderness in order to continue the Old Testament tradition. What was that tradition? That tradition was it's in the wilderness that God the Father both tries us, puts us through trials, and meets us. God the Father meets us in the wilderness because God the Father puts us through trials in the wilderness. He meets us at our lowest because it's only when we're looking up that we'll take our eyes off ourselves and put them where they belong, on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accompanies His disciples to glory, for sure. Through suffering, for sure. 
So Mark emphasizes here that John was handed over. He was delivered to persecution because you and I, the reader, need to see that this theme of Jesus and his followers will be continued. Jesus and his followers will be subject to suffering and persecution. We find that Jesus will be handed over, delivered to persecution in chapters 14 and 15. And we see that believers, those who follow Jesus, will be handed over or delivered to persecution in chapter 13. So that's why this idea of handing them over needs to be understood not as simple arrest, but the reader is meant to ask themselves, who is it who will be doing the handing over? Well, the answer is strongly implied in Mark chapter 13, 9 through 13. Jesus warns, be on your guard, for they, he's talking about everyone around us, for they will deliver or hand you over to the councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness for them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver or hand over, hand you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver or hand over brother to death. The father his child. And children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be aided by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. I want you to notice. Who is the author of this? It's the same one who will give you the words to speak. God the Spirit. And I want you to notice, who are the they who will deliver you over to persecution? People all around you, people near you, your family, your friends, your enemies. But who is it that hands you over to persecution? It is your Father in heaven. Because he meets you in the wilderness. Because it is in the wilderness that we find all our props and all our pretensions are removed so that we can finally see the Lord in all His glory. James Edwards says this, Handing over combines not only the adversities to which the faithful are subjected, but also the superintending will of God that is operative through them. In other words, as you walk through the Gospel of Mark, never forget everything that happens, all that happens, everything that goes on, never forget God the Father always initiates. His people then respond. His people then respond as the Holy Spirit gives them to respond. And as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, never forget, God the Father always initiates and you respond. You and I respond as God the Holy Spirit enables us to. So don't worry. Don't fret. Is the world going to hell in a handbasket? Pardon the phrase. Sure does seem so. Do I need to be afraid? Not a bit. Because my Father in heaven is the one who initiates. He is the one who works in me and through me and for me and for those who are near me. For you. 
God the Father orchestrating even our sufferings gives you and me the confidence that we are always in His hands when we are arrested, when our family hands us over to affliction, when we are delivered to the courts and the generals and who knows whom. When these happens, we have trust. We have trust that He is with us and nothing surprises Him. We have hope. Hope that his promises remain true. Promises, for example, like Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Oh my goodness, what a bargain. God, I need help. God says, here's help. God, you're great. Woohoo! Praise Jesus. That's it. That. That's what God is asking for because there's nothing else you have that would be worth anything to him. Just your love and admiration. Just your trust. And mind this. I'm really wanting to emphasize this and you'll probably hear me say this as we continue in Mark. Don't expect to be delivered out of tribulation. The Bible always takes his people deliverance through difficulty, through tribulation, through the plagues of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through Babylon, through all of the difficulties that happen. Because difficulties will not end until you and I are brought into the presence of Jesus. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God the Father delivers us through our troubles because that deliverance causes us to give glory to God. Praise Jesus. And he sees that. And those who are around you see that while we are going through troubles and difficulties and persecutions, we can praise Jesus because we know it's coming. And that will cause them to, wait a minute. I need to see this. What is going on? And they too will trust the promises of God for them in Jesus. Let's go back to our passage again one more time. Mark 1.14 After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, this little note, Jesus came into Galilee, is important. Galilee was his home base. He was living in Capernaum. Jesus is going home. That seems natural. And at least part of the point Jesus would make in going home, in going to Capernaum where he set up his his ministry base, at least part of his point, Mark clarified in Mark 6, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, evidently the ones who trusted him. So what's the point? What, what What do we get out of this? You and I need to brave the wilderness, the trials of preaching at home as well. And what is it we are to preach? What is it that we are to say? The good news. The good news. The good news 
that we saw at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Gospel is good news, my friends. It is good, therefore, so Christians can rejoice. There's nothing so bad about the Christian witness as sourpuss Christians. But when we keep our eyes on Jesus, instead of whoever's annoying us, instead of whoever's stealing our thunder, instead of whoever's being unkind to us, then people will see that and rejoice. But take your eyes off him and you will despair. Furthermore, we saw that it is the good news concerning Jesus, the man of Nazareth, the one born of Joseph and Mary, God with skin on. Oh, amen. It is the good news of Christ, the appointed prophet, priest, and king, chosen by God to reconcile his people to him. And it is the good news of the Son of God. He is the Son of God, not became the Son of God. Jesus is was and forever will be God's son. Therefore, he has authority. He has authority because he is, in fact, God. And we can know he has the full approval of God. And because of that, we know that everything he said and everything he did is solid and trustworthy and good. So rejoice. 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 Rejoice in the good news every day. Hold the good news before your eyes constantly. Rejoice by turning away from the lies that Satan has all around you. Take a moment right now and ask yourself, what and when am I allowing the lies of Satan to get into my heart through what I am enjoying? And how are these lies that I am pursuing turning my heart and my mind away from God's promises for me in Jesus? How is what I am, in fact, rejoicing in causing me to distrust Jesus? Instead, trust the promises of God for you in Jesus. Turn to Him in His Word. Trust His promises. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. While it is true that the good news is outlined in Mark 1.1, we did three weeks on that, it is given further summary here in verse 15. And he starts off, the time is fulfilled. And again, much could be said about this. Suffice it to say that God was ready. God was ready. And he made sure humanity was ready. All sorts of aspects of it was made ready. I have a question. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus? Not to come the first time. That happened 2,000 years ago. Are you ready for him to come back? Now, it isn't apparent in English, but the time referred to in verse 15 is kairos. That's the Greek word. It has to do with significant time, not calendar time, not what time is it on the clock. This is God's appointed time. 
It's time. Preparation is complete. The time for delay is past. Now is the time to act. Romans 13.11 says, Besides this, you know that the time, this kairos, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Are you asleep? Are you asleep in terms of your relationship to what's going on in the kingdom around you? Are you asleep in terms of those who are around you who desperately need to see Jesus in you? Are you asleep? Wake up! Wake up! The time is now. The time is at hand. Now is the moment. Now is the time of salvation. Oh, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So indeed, the time is fulfilled. Jesus came. The time is fulfilled again. And he's sending you. To what did he send you? To preach the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Mark uses the phrase the kingdom of God 14 times. The kingdom of God in Mark is used in a few different ways, but the kingdom of God is a new reality. It is a new state of being. It's a new way of living. The availability of the kingdom is new, and that's what makes the new covenant new. It's the invitation to join the Father in what he is doing now. And Mark comes along, and he, re he records Jesus' invitation to you to join him. Mark wants you to know that God's reign is now available in a manner that it had never been available for in the Old Testament. And God's kingdom is available because Jesus is here now. He is now. The kingdom is now. It is at hand right here. And because of where we find this, the announcement of Mark, in other words, right at the end of the prologue and the beginning of the rest of the book, and frankly, because of how we find the, the parallel statement in Matthew, repeated three times, John the Baptist, right before the Sermon on the Mount, and then in chapter 10 where he sends the twelve out to preach, because of how it is listed, we know that repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, believe the gospel, that is... Jesus' own summary of his teaching. That's, that was the main thing he wanted to get across. Now, it took all the rest of his teaching to unpack that. It takes Paul and James and Peter to come along and help us unpack that. But now we need to understand what is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done. And that can be in the world insofar as as God's will gets done what God wants done. But it is also and primarily, first and foremost, in our hearts. And that power to do what God wants to get done, done, happens. It starts when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. It is not an oversimplification to say that Jesus offers you the greatest deal there is. You and me we get to partner with God in bringing about His glory and our joy. The kingdom of God is the availability of His undeserved power to accomplish His purposes, to grow His kingdom. 
And this statement is nothing less than the offer of grace. It is nothing less than the offer of a right relationship with God by grace through faith. Stop and think about this. God Almighty is offering to have you partner with Him. Stop and think about this. God Almighty is offering to give you a right relationship with Him. And He's offering to give you the privilege of offering that right relationship to your near ones. And He's offering you something even better. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not, little flock. You, you are small. It's true. The world hates you. It's true. They're more powerful than you. It's true. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure. It gives Him joy to give you the kingdom. To give you where what God wants done gets done. Okay, Jesus, that sounds great. I want to be a part of that. What, is it, what does it look like? Well, Don't ignore the God the Son's offer. Join Him because His kingdom is at hand. Now this is an interesting phrase. There are two true ways, equally valid ways of looking at this phrase. The first is that the power of God to accomplish His purposes is at hand. It is as close as your fingertips. It's, it's grabbable. It's, you, it's available to you. But there's another way that this idea is used in the Old Testament. The second way of understanding this phrase is that the kingdom of God is the next thing coming. It, it's the next thing on the agenda. It, it, he's got a script written out, and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's, it's coming right now. So we see the kingdom of Israel came and went. By the time of the first century, the kingdom of Israel is ancient history. It, it, we've been under Roman rule for a whole long time. So what's next, Lord? What's coming next? The kingdom of God. Okay, the kingdom of God. His power to accomplish his purposes is at hand. Therefore, there is no time for delay. There is no time to be distracted by other things. So what do we do? Trust the promises of God for you and Jesus. What do we do? We know and we believe and we trust the promises of God for you and Jesus. Pursue the kingdom. Pursue Jesus. Pray and ask God the Spirit to move in you by grace through faith to see, seek first His kingdom. Okay, that's great. But what do I, how do I do that? What does that look like? Well, fortunately, Jesus answers, and he tells us two things. First of all, repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, to repent is to change your mind. It means specifically to change your mind regarding those things that cause you to look away from the kingdom of God. Now listen, you and I have a flavor of sin that we enjoy. This flavor of sin is 
whatever tendency that constantly pulls you away from delighting in the things of God. This tendency is locked into what Paul calls your flesh. And frankly, it will be with you until you die physically or are glorified by Christ's return. Until then, you will find yourself in need of repentance. All there is. Every day. So Jesus says, repent. And, and, Turning away from sin is never enough. You must fill the empty space that the repenting made in your soul. You turned away from sinful thoughts. You need to turn towards something. You must fill your thoughts. You must fill your day. You must fill every aspect of your life with Jesus. Now, that can sound pretty mystical, esoteric, whatever you want to call it. But let's just bring it down to brass tacks. Let's just, let's just understand what it is. We fill our thoughts with the promises of God for us in Jesus. And as we fill our thoughts with these promises, as we continue to turn our thoughts more and more to what he tells us is in his word, then we turn more and more away from the flavor of sin. And we believe. We believe. Repent and believe. What is it we are to believe? Well, Jesus doesn't really elaborate. He says in the gospel, we'll get to that in a minute, but he doesn't really elaborate this in this passage. We are not, however, left to guess. Mark helps us by telling the story of a father who begs Jesus to cast the demon out of his son. If you can help us, Jesus, please do so. Mark 9, verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Pro tip, I believe, help my unbelief is always a good prayer. No matter what your struggle is at that moment, no matter what persecution or affliction you're in, At that moment, the prayer, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, is always a good prayer. There's your pro tip for the day. But that leaves the question. I mean, this is an important question. What is it that Jesus is asking of this man? Jesus is asking him to trust him, to trust Jesus' ability and compassion to help him. That's the essence of faith. The essence of faith is saying, Jesus, I got a problem. You're the only one who can solve it. I'm trusting you. Give me what I need. Now, the give me what I need may not always be what I want. I want this toy. I want that toy. I want this circumstance changed. I want that person out of my life. I want this person into my life. Well, you're not guaranteed all that. But what you're guaranteed is deliverance through your difficulty. So trust the promises of God for you and Jesus. One more thing about that story in Mark chapter 9. This man did not know the promises of God for him and Jesus. I'm sure he knew. He probably grew up going to synagogue. But what he knew was the man, Jesus. 
And so we trusted Jesus. You, me, we know the man because we know him through Scripture. We know the promises, or at least you should know the promises. Perhaps a good question for yourself would be, why do I not know these promises better? Perhaps you could ask God the Spirit to move in you and through you to know these promises better so that you will love them and trust them more. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But Jesus gets one step more specific. Repent and believe. What is it we're to believe? We're to believe the gospel. And, and this is short for what I'm saying and trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. What is that? The good news. The good news is we will not stray far if we say that the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. The good news is good because we have no other hope. The good news is good because it meets us at our most basic need. The good news is good because we could not have ever learned of it any other way. Except through God taking the initiative. Except through God revealing himself to us. The good news is all you need. Which turns out to be a really good deal because the good news is all you have. So trust in the promises of God for you and Jesus. It was 200 years ago that Voltaire said, show me your redeemed life and I will believe in your Redeemer. Now, most of your near ones have never even heard of Voltaire. If they have, it was some ancient history class. That, oh, I remember the name. But they know the idea. They understand the idea. Show me your redeemed life and I'll believe in your Redeemer. Why should I get up early on Sunday morning if it's not making a big difference in your life? You know, one of the struggles that the church faces is we tend to fall on one side or the other. Legalism, you have to obey every single rule in order to be a good Christian, or license, I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'll do whatever I want, and Jesus will save me. The middle road the road that leads to salvation is the one that knows, goes to God's Word and finds those promises and then asks God the Spirit to give him grace, give him the undeserved power to accomplish and, in this case, believe those promises. Trust those promises of God for you in Christ. And that is what's going to enable you God's Holy Spirit working His promises in you by grace through faith that's going to enable you to live the redeemed life so that your neighbors can notice and believe in your Redeemer. Lord Jesus, we so desperately need You. We so desperately need You to meet us here. And Lord, we know that You're not calling us to perfection. We, we cannot be perfect but enable us, equip us to perseverance for our neighbor's sake, for the, the growth of your kingdom, but also for our joy because we want to see that, but ultimately and foremost for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.